me encourage you just to take a minute and bow your head and just consider maybe the, the different ways that God has been good and gracious to you this week. It's good for us to not rush into this time together. And God, would you remind us even now just the ways that you are and have been good to us this last week. God, if the world <clears throat> could capture in some ways all the ways that you have been good and gracious, um, it would still fall woefully short of the true sum of how good you are. Um, words cannot express the depths of your goodness and your graciousness toward us. Uh, you have been and you are good and gracious. And we're so thankful that not only as your people do we get to exchange our sin for the righteousness of Jesus through faith, that even this morning that we, um, by way of being here and coming into your presence, we get to exchange our sorrows for joys, that we, we get to exchange our weakness for strength. And, and I pray that you would remind us this morning through your word, through your spirit, uh, how good you are to us and that you'd be uh, the focus of our attention, um, that you would be the source of our adoration, and increasingly that our affection would grow for you. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done. Uh, we thank you for the ways in which we get to learn from your word as we study through, um, particularly the book of Acts here on Sunday morning, the way in which you are, uh, have and are growing your church. Uh, you will build your church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so I pray as we open your word now, that our hearts would be ready to hear from you. Um, Spirit of God, if, if you don't help me, if you don't show up in this room, there's nothing of any lasting eternal benefit that will happen. But when you do show up, when you do illuminate your word to our lives and our hearts, there are eternal changes that happen, that matter fully and ultimately. And so I pray that you'd shape us, Increase conviction in our lives where we need that. Give us wisdom where we lack it. Increase our joy as we see your glory on these pages of scripture. We believe that your word has been breathed out for us to teach and instruct and, instruct and correct us. And I pray that it would do just that this morning through your spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll be finishing up the ninth chapter. So, um, for you married couples, and if you're engaged in this room, I don't know if there's anybody engaged in here, <clears throat> engagement is a season of, of, that feels like a little bit of already, not yet, because putting a ring on someone's finger can feel so real, like marriage can feel so tangible that it's almost like it's already come, but it's truly not yet arrived. And so, maybe another example would be when you turn 18, like... You, in some ways, are already an adult, but I joke with my daughter Taylor, who's 18, there's some ways where you're not quite yet an adult, evidenced by the fact she lives in my home and eats my food, and we have to sustain her life in some ways. And um, so She's already an adult in one way, but not quite yet an adult in other ways. <clears throat> and that description, I think, aptly defines the Christian life. 
that the Christian life is a life lived on this side of heaven that's already and not yet. Let me give you a few kind of pictures of this, and there are many. The life of the Christian is that we are already new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 gives us that picture that we're new creations in Christ. Old things have passed, new things have come, but yet we're still imperfect. And we're still battling against sin on this side of heaven. So we're already new creations, but not quite yet fully what that means we will be someday. We're already redeemed, purchased from our captivity to sin, but yet but not yet what ultimately that will mean at the end of days when Jesus returns. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that even creation longs for this future day where our current redemption is made whole and complete. So we're already redeemed, but not yet fully redeemed. That we're already raised with Christ spiritually. The book of Ephesians talks about this other places as well, is that we've been seated with Christ. We're raised with Christ in his resurrection power, seated with him in the heavenly places. But you look around this room, and we're very quickly reminded that we're not yet seated there. We're physically situated in this room. So there's a way in which we're already spiritually there, but not quite yet there fully and finally. And so when we look at this, these stories this morning, and we're going to see a couple miracles take place in two different cities. And one of the things I would submit that we should see as we look through these stories is this already not yet dynamic of the kingdom of God. So Jesus told his disciples to pray in such a way that one of the things that they would pray is that God's kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is, sounds like a complex thing, but plainly could be understood of, as being the place where Jesus reigns as king. There's a way in which Jesus said his kingdom is at hand, it's here and now, that where he reigns and where he rules in the hearts of his people, that there's a way in which the, the kingdom is already present. And so we're going to see that through miracles. There's a way in which miracles are like a current earthly manifestation of the reigning and ruling power of Jesus, but they're just a signal for the, the not yet full and final culmination and consummation of the kingdom once and for all. So let's read. We're going to read Acts 9, 32 through 43 to kind of finish off the chapter, and then we'll go back and make some observations. Why don't you join there with me? Verse 32, chapter 9, this is God's word. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. 
But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body of Tabitha, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. All right, so in verse 32, at this point in the growth of the church, like these unique, peculiar Jesus people where the church is growing, there's now freedom to move about because we've seen different shades and types of persecution. But, but Peter is able to move around the region with freedom, visiting the saints and the, these early forms of the churches, disciples gathered in different cities. And this is just a real plain kind of fun language that we get to remind us of just what does it look like to be a, a witness for Jesus? There's a way in which like we kind of go here and there, just seeking to be faithful wherever God places us. And Peter, it seems, is much that way. He was going here and there, and God led him to Lydda to minister to the church there, and particularly to this man, Aeneas. This reminiscent of what we saw in Philip, right? So he was just this ready, obedient, faithful witness to the gospel who went and was faithful wherever God placed him. And when he went to Lydda, he found Aeneas. As he went here and there, and this is a good reminder for us too, we pray, we actively seek to obey God and be available to what he wants to do in our lives. He's going to be faithful to give us opportunities to serve him. So no surprise, he goes to Lydda, and within the city he finds Aeneas. There's no real clear picture of this man was a, a Christian, a believer in Jesus at the time before Peter came, or if it was just after. But we do know a couple things about him, namely that he was in bed for eight years. He's paralyzed. So I just want for a minute, I just want us to kind of sit in the hopelessness of what this would have meant, particularly at this stage in history. In the first century, if you were paralyzed, if you had a profound disability, like your existence would have quite literally been helpless and hopeless. You have been 100% completely dependent on the mercy of other people. That's why you see pictures of people in the New Testament begging for alms, which is really a, it's the same word used for mercy. It's just have mercy on me. Look at my condition and give me something that I might preserve my life. And that was... Aeneas's plight. He was stuck in bed for eight years. Some of you have eight-year-old children. You can imagine just the helpless and hopeless condition this man would have been in and the way he would have felt. But there's this wonderful moment where Peter assumedly just looks him plainly in the eyes. And he says, Aeneas, Jesus heals you. And so the verb tense quite literally would, would sound like this. Aeneas, right now, Jesus Christ is healing you. It's what faith, and like Peter, filled with the Spirit, believed so strongly that God was able to heal Aeneas and was going to do that. He just said, right now, as I utter these words, Jesus Christ is, is healing you. And Peter wanted to be very sure that Aeneas knew who it was that healed him, Right? As God's people, there's a good reminder there for us because we live in an age, if you've been walking with the Lord long enough, you know that you can speak about God with relative ease because people can fill in the box for what God you're talking about. But when you start mentioning Jesus, things get a little bit rougher. So Peter wants Aeneas to understand it's Jesus Christ 
He is the name. He's the one who is right now healing you. And as those who've been sent to witness for Jesus, we need to be just as clear and specific as Peter about who heals and who saves. If you think back on that, that man, if you were here during Acts chapter three, we preached through that. There was a man who was lame for years and years and he, he sat at the gate to the temple and he begged people for money. That was the way in which his life was preserved. Peter and John come through at the hour of prayer and he asks them for money. He's begging for alms, literally for mercy. And what happens when they encounter him? They say this, hey, we don't have silver or gold, but what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. That's exactly what Peter is saying. And then later on, when Peter and John are confronted about the way in which they did this miracle, they tell the religious leaders, if you're asking us questions about how this man has been made well in the city, in your sight, he says, let it be clear, by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is standing before you well. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Peter's words are still true today, and they'll be true forever, that Jesus is the one who heals men and women and children. Jesus Christ is the name that restores, that causes lame people to walk, to stand to their feet. And for eight years, Aeneas depended on the alms, the mercy of other people. Now God himself has dipped down, as it were, to give him, to shower him with alms, with mercy that he might get up and walk. And what does he say to him? He says, get up, stand up and make your bed. And all the parents said, amen, right? It's biblical to make your bed when you wake up in the morning. So, but the picture of his bed, just think about it this way, like Aeneas' bed was a little bit like a coffin. It was like grave clothes for him. He was captive to his bed. And Peter said, Jesus Christ right now is healing you. Get up, stand up, and make your bed. Rise and make your bed. And the picture would be something like this. When we, when we get up from sleep, Whenever that happens in various moments in time, for some of you it's harder than others, when we get up and we step out of our bed and we make our bed specifically, it signals something, that the time for sleeping has passed. And now it's time to do life. You have responsibility and you have a job to do. And I would submit that's much of what you see in this picture. Aeneas, get up, but don't just stand up, put your bed away, because now is the time for living. Now is the time for you to to get to work to make the kingdom of God known and displayed through your healing and through your life, you have work to do. And Aeneas' bed was something of a tomb and it represented captivity and hopelessness. And, and Jesus, hear this, he says, no more, like put it away, put it away. It's a time for sleeping has passed. <clears throat> and you might be in this room and maybe you've never, you've never encountered Jesus, like you've never surrendered to him. He's not your king and your savior and your treasure. My encouragement would be just to hear the words that are given to Aeneas. Is you might not be paralyzed. You may be fully capable of making your own bed and taking care of yourself physically. But Aeneas's plight is an apt depiction of our lives, spiritually speaking, apart from Jesus. That we're helpless and we're hopeless depending completely on another source to make us walk and to give us life. 
And that's the picture in the Bible of our spiritual condition apart from Jesus, that we quite literally are dead in sin, unable of working unto life. And we're in bondage to all types of sin and things paralyze us and make us fearful and keep us from being the, the people that God has intended for us to be. But in a moment, we can be made whole. Like Jesus Christ today, the same words are true. Jesus Christ can right now heal you if you believe and turn to him. Saving faith, he can make you whole and cause you to stand and walk away from the bed of sin that once wrapped you up and held you captive. You can have a life full of purpose unto making much of Jesus. And for others of us as believers, like you might read these stories and you might think to yourself, like I'm not, I'm not a miracle. Like I wasn't paralyzed. I didn't come to be able to walk from being paralyzed. I didn't die and come back to life. And Christian comedian Tim Hawkins kind of jokes about this dynamic in the Christian experience that at times we can hear a testimony of a believer, like another Christian, that's so significant. And our response can be something like this, like, oh, I wish I was a crack addict. You know, like, I wish I had some other story, some other more, like, obvious sign of the grace of God in my life. But hear me when I say this. It's like, in the course of history and in the survey of our church body, there are some people in this room, some people in our church, they, they can't remember a time where they didn't love God. Because at such an early age, God preserved them from chasing after the world. And I've heard, literally, some people in that position kind of grumble against the fact that like, I don't have a greater, more brilliant testimony. That's just a, that's a unique grace of God to not remember a time you didn't rebel against him. You still need him to save you, but that's a, a sweet expression of the mercy of God. It's just different than someone who's saved from the street life or from addiction or from more egregious forms of sin, but it's all of grace. It's all owing to the mercy of God. So whatever your story is, remember the fact that you are a walking miracle. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you are a miracle. Why? Because the Bible says that you once were so defined by darkness that you were darkness, that I was darkness, but now I am light in the Lord and I can walk as a child of light. And we once were dead, but now we've been made alive and that's the wonderful depiction in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins until God intervened. But God, being rich in mercy, while we were dead in our sins, with his, because of his great love and mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, right? Every single one of us in Christ were walking miracles. We're objects of God's mercy. We've been taken from spiritual slumber. We're awake to God from death to life. The bed of sin, those grave clothes aren't fitting for the new man or woman we talked about. We studied that through Ephesians. There's a particular uniform of your old life that you believe in Christ and he gets a hold of your heart, makes you new, is you put those old clothes away. It's like an old uniform. You put it aside. You put on the clothes of the new man that look remarkably like Jesus. And you walk in newness of life. And by and by, over time, degrees we look more and more like Christ, increasing in righteousness. That's what the word sanctification means. We're increasingly set apart for God, looking more and more like Christ throughout our lives. And so in this story of Aeneas, we see God displaying his power 
over disease. And so next what we see is God displaying his power over death. Let's go to the text real quickly. In verse 36, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is Aramaic, which translated in Greek means Dorcas. And we're going to go with the Aramaic word because Dorcas is just not a flattering name. I don't know why the Greek takes it to that place. Tabitha is a pretty name, means gazelle, it's elegant, and we're just going to stick with Tabitha for this morning. But her testimony is really, really encouraging and challenging for us. There's a very brief statement made about her, and it says this, that she was full of good works and acts of charity. The New American Standard, I think, kind of captures it a little more fully. It says that Tabitha was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Now, what a sweet example of a disciple of Jesus. Think of it this way. Tabitha was an object of the mercy of God, had received the mercy of God, and now she went around giving away the mercy of God. This picture of charity is really giving away alms, mercy to other people. She served the widows of Joppa in a unique way, which we see in just a moment. We see their reaction to her, her death. She made them clothes, and she was devoted to meeting their felt needs, and there's something really near to the heart of God and the pattern of New Testament Christians. Let me just highlight a couple of different examples. In Titus 3, 14, it says, And let our people, the people of the church, these Jesus lovers, Jesus followers, let them learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We're not saved by works, but we're saved unto good works. Objects of mercy display and give away mercy. It's like that hidden treasure that just kind of shakes out of us as we go through our lives. Tabitha's pattern of life is something every single one of us should emulate. Objects of mercy, continually giving away mercy to other people. So in verse 37, we see that Tabitha became ill and she died. We don't get a whole lot of detail. She got sick and she died. And so because the disciples in Joppa knew that Peter was close, some 11, 12 miles away, they sent two disciples to go get him. And when they found him, they said, please come, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, verse 39. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with him. This is an incredibly emotional scene. Just kind of picture it for a moment. So Peter comes into town. Undoubtedly, everyone would have known that Peter was there. It would have made quite a stir. The apostle Peter, the miracle worker, was present. <clears throat> Peter goes to this upper room where Tabitha's dead body is located. And as he walks in, you can kind of picture maybe a hallway, a staircase, a room. He walks in, and the room is full of weeping widows. And they're crying. They're weeping over their, their dead friend, Tabitha. And they're doing something like this, like, look, every single one almost. Peter looks at it, like, look what she made for me. This tunic, this garment, look how, how much she left behind and to signify like her work among us. She was a mercy giver to us. And I just wondered, one of the things that came to mind for me thinking about, like, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? 
and the word residue came to mind. Maybe because we're in pollen season, but there's a, there's a kingdom residue that's left behind by people who live kingdom lives. So after we're gone, maybe the question is, like, what are we going to leave behind? Like, what evidence of our being people of the kingdom who love Christ, what evidence will we leave behind that we were there being a blessing, being a tangible expression of a, a kingdom man, a kingdom woman, a kingdom child? What kingdom residue are we going to leave behind? What particular pattern of service or good works, a pattern of life or character that shapes those in our lives, a life given to service and to love others and a life chiefly given to love Christ. So what happens next? So in verse 40, amidst all these weeping widows, grieving for Tabitha, Peter puts them out of the room. He sends them out and he kneels down and he prays. This is remarkably like this story from the New Testament. You might remember there's a man named Jairus whose daughter died and Jesus was summoned to heal her. But just think of this picture. Jesus, in that moment, a remarkably similar miracle where he raises Jairus' daughter to life after her dying. Guess who he keeps in the room with him? Peter, James, and John. So Peter had seen Jesus do remarkably similar miracles just like the one he is entering into. He sends the people out. And we hear that he prayed. We don't have any idea what he prayed or for how long. You can imagine something like, God, be glorified now. Like, show your power. And what does he do? He prays. He turns to the dead body of, of Tabitha, and he says, Tabitha, arise. John Calvin talked about how it's ludicrous to look at a dead body and talk to it, to command anything from it. Because Peter was so filled with the Spirit, so filled with faith that Jesus could raise Tabitha. He looks at her, he speaks to her, and he says, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And it's just wonderfully tender kind of moment. He gave her his hand, which notably for a Jewish man, you wouldn't touch a dead body because it would make you unclean. But so sure was Peter of the fact that she was alive and made whole that he reaches out grabs her hand, what does he do next? He brings her and he presents her to everyone present. Like, look what God has done. Can you imagine the scene? You've been there seeing a bride presented at a wedding? Can you imagine seeing someone presented as alive from the dead? Here she is. Like, look what God has done. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's a sign here that the power of God is among us. This wonderful miracle. He gives his hand, he raises her up, presents her to all the saints and the widows, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. I don't know if you saw that theme. You see it in verse 42 with Tabitha. So the miracle in her life, she's raised from the dead. What do we see is the effect? It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. If you go backwards to Aeneas' story, what did we see there? Verse 35, after he's raised, everybody knows he's been in bed for eight years, and he rises, makes his bed, and what happens? All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Why is this important? Here's how I'd summarize this. We can be tempted, as we read through the book of Acts, 
And in the New Testament, in some ways, primarily in this book, as we see the church grow to make miracles and signs the ends instead of the means. So what we see in these two stories is that the miracles were not, the miracles of physical restoration weren't the, the ultimate picture of the power of God. They were just the, the means to get to the ends of seeing scores of people come to faith in Jesus, mass conversions, revival in its truest sense. The miracles were just a signal that pointed people to the place where life can be found. And they turned and they believed and people were eternally saved and changed. And unfortunately, like many Bible teachers make the miracles the central part of the story and not the saving work of belief in Jesus. Faith in a miracle doesn't save anyone. Faith in Jesus saves everyone who exercises and believes with saving and converting faith. So you see this movement in Lydda and Sharon, these two cities just transformed forever because of this sign of the kingdom. The ultimate and central sign of the kingdom was people coming to believe in Jesus. They saw the work, they turned to Jesus and believed in him. And there's this wonderful picture of let the, the glory of what Jesus has done in your life shine. We see that in Matthew chapter five, let the light of God, let your light shine before men in such a way they see the change in you, your good works, and do what? Glorify your father who's in heaven. They don't just see your good works and say, man, Matt's sure a good fella. No, they glory, they turn to, they give credit to, and they believe in the one who's made me different and changed and saved me. There's a whole lot of debate in Christian circles about signs and miracles and whether God still uses them to advance his kingdom and his fame. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Bible teachers who look at this miraculous healing work of Peter, even in this moment, and take it and make it normative as a pursuit and a pattern for every Christian for all times. And I think that's, that's a mistake biblically, and I'll, and I'll try to demonstrate why. So we as a church, and biblically speaking, we believe that God can and still does accomplish miracles and heal people. Flat out, we believe that the God of the universe can never be boxed in to say he's not going to do something. That God still can and does accomplish miracles in people's lives to bring attention to his name and to further his kingdom. However, we also believe in Acts, which is kind of this picture of the apostolic age, the age of the apostles was a unique moment in time where miracles, signs and wonders and healings were used in a particular way, in a temporary way to validate this new message of the gospel and to validate these early messengers in a unique way. So as a result, miraculous signs and wonders and healings and miracles aren't the normal experience of every Christian nor the primary means God uses to testify to the saving power of Jesus. Now for us as Christians and as a church and as a pastor and as a preacher, I don't lean on miracles to, to testify primarily to Jesus Christ and his power. What do I use? We use God's word as the primary means to testify to his conforming power and the furtherance of his kingdom and for the declaration of his fame. 
in the fame of Jesus. And now that's the matter of first importance for us. So the kingdom of God in these moments of miracles is already at hand, but it's not quite fully real. Let me just get practical here for a second. Let me share a personal story that I think we all wrestle with in this space. And if you haven't yet, you probably will at some point in your life. As we deal with this unique moment in history where signs, wonders, healings are uniquely manifested to confirm the message and the messengers, one of the things it causes us to wrestle with is what about now? Like if God can heal, if he can take away disease, if he can do anything, how does it connect with the way that I pray? What I believe and like how does it interact with the suffering around me, with the people in my life that I want to see healed from disease? My dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer back in 2000, end of 2010. He died just a few months later from pancreatic cancer when he was 56. It was one of the primary moments in my life where I, I can assure you that I prayed with all of my heart as, as well as I could think. That, that God would heal my dad and take away cancer. And I can assure you that I believe then and I believe now that God can take away cancer. I believe that. And I remember being confronted with passages. Like Jesus says, hey, the things that you desire and pray for them, but pray for them in such a way that you believe that you've already received them. That's the kind of faith that we're to exercise in prayer. But the mystery of this already not yet dynamic in the kingdom of God is that there are ways that God will display his glory temporarily on this earth as a signal for what lies ahead. And there will be a way in which there, there are things that we don't see here that will be reserved for what's ahead. That's why you see the, the tension in the body. We live in this place of tension where we're called in James chapter 5 as pastors, if someone is sick, to bring them into the church. As elders, we anoint them with oil, pray for them that they might be made well. We have done that countless times. And God has worked in different ways through it. So you see this, pray with faith for healing because God can and he does. And we pray that he will, we believe that he will. But yet at the same time, God says, I may not remove the thorn from you. You may live in this life in such a way that the way I choose to display my power is by being strong in your weakness. And so we live in this dynamic of praying, believing that God can and he will, but trusting that he may not because he is God and we're not. And here's some of what I'd summarize is just a way in which to think through this, is that we, we believe, and I would commend you based on the teaching of scriptures, that we believe that God can heal and accomplish miracles at any time he wants, but we have no guarantee in this life that he will. That seems to be the teaching of Scripture, that we believe that he can, and we pray that he will, but he gives us no guarantee in this life that he'll actually do that. But here's what's equally true, that God will heal ultimately, and we have every evidence in the Bible to believe that he ultimately will. But it may not be here. It may be there. And even the greatest moments of healing and miracle in this life, Aeneas and Tabitha included, were just temporary expressions of what's going to be an ultimate and final demonstration of the power of God. Why? Why do I say that? 
Some, someone once commented that with Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead by Jesus, Lazarus had to do his dying all over again. Jesus is the only one who's the firstborn from the dead. He rose from the grave unto forever life. But every single person that's healed, including these two, the Tabitha was raised from the dead, but she, she died ultimately. That Aeneas was healed, but he still died. Why is that important? Because even those powerful demonstrations of the kingdom of God in this world, in this life, are just temporary signals of what is fully and finally going to be experienced there. It's already, but not quite yet, what it will be one day. And it's so important for us to understand, because if we don't, this life will be filled with all sorts of discouragement, because we'll be wondering, like, why God didn't act in a certain way here that may ultimately just be preserved in the life to come. Even the best things in this world are temporary. Even physical healing in this life will be eventually overcome by the culminating work of sin, which is death. And I believe some of what God does in the midst of pain and even in the midst of seeing him work tangibly in this life is he loosens our grip on this world. He loosens our grip on the here and now so that we would just reach for, like yearn for the place where fullness and finality of healing and ultimate restoration is present. And church family, that's not here. This world is not our home. This world is broken and it will be broken until it's made new finally and fully. Let me just share a couple thoughts with you as to that future place, that future kingdom that I pray will just be a fuel for your worship and your perspective as you go through this life, feeling the ups and downs of this current age. And that final future kingdom, all oppression will be uprooted. In the final future kingdom, all evil will be extinguished. All sadness will be permanently removed. All disease will be destroyed. All hunger and thirst will be satisfied. All healing will be permanent. All freedom is going to be forever. All forms and shades of death will be overcome by life. And our adoption into God's family will be fully realized. And everything about us and everything in this world will be made new. And that's where our hope lies. And Lydda and Joppa became outposts, these visible demonstrations of the tangible, powerful hand of God. The kingdom of God touching earth in a moment. God working physical miracles on the lives of two people. And their physical transformation led to the spiritual transformation of countless people. And that's what I pray that we would become. Like in our lives as a collective family of faith, that we be like the city of Lydda and Joppa. Just countless people transformed by the grace of God. Scattering mercy because we've received mercy. Leaving the residue of the kingdom behind. And to the degree anyone sees a change in our lives, that we point to Jesus so clearly is that what would happen is that they would turn to Jesus. They would believe in him. That countless people, because of God's gracious work in us, would come to faith in King Jesus. May the Lord use us as a church, as an outpost of his greatness, that many would see his power, hear the good news of Jesus, and turn to him for salvation. Let's pray.
God, we, um, we know that this kind of work, uh, this spiritual work in human hearts uh, cannot be conjured up by way of personality or giftedness or program or strategy. And so we, we beg you that your spirit would do what only you can do. That you would move in such a way through us as your people that as objects of your mercy, that we would scatter mercy around us to meet tangible needs, to minister to those who have needs, and all of it pointing to the merciful work of Jesus. And God, we want to see more and more people come to know you, more and more people become whole and be rescued from grave clothes and to put away that old uniform and walk in newness of life. And God, we... We need your help. Um, We don't love you the way that you deserve. Uh, We need you more than we know and acknowledge. And so I pray that you'd help us as your people to be these bright outposts of the kingdom of God here on earth, that your kingdom would come, that we would be a place, this church would be a place where, where you reign as king over your people. And we submit to your authority with gladness and with joy. And through that, that many more would come to know you. Would you encourage us where we're faint-hearted this morning, knowing that you're powerful? Would you give us wisdom where we lack it? And I pray that you give us joy as we sing this song in response, that there is a freedom that we have received through Christ that can be found nowhere else. That where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That the one who Christ sets free is free indeed. And I pray for your people in this place that we'd feel the full magnitude of that freedom, that we can say no to sin and yes to Christ uh, more and more each day. I pray we love you more today than we did yesterday. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.